0: Welcome to Education Talks, I'm David Burke. Terence Tan is a former teacher and now product manager at Edmaker in Singapore. In this episode of Education Talks, Terence reflects on his time working on policy initiatives with the Ministry of Education. He also discusses Edmaker's Community Lab Makerspace at United World College, and a new PD approach to engage teachers with emerging technologies. Well, Terence, welcome to Education Talks. Great to have you. Uh, Where are you right now? I'm based in
1: Singapore um, and I'm with this company Edmaker. Uh, We're based in Singapore, but we have a couple of offices in India and the US, Um, but but Singapore is where I'm
0: based and I've been working here since, you know, 2016. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit about your background in education prior to getting involved with Edmaker? Uh, sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. I think um, a lot of teachers,
1: a lot of educators who uh, joined the sector, you know, they have, a, they have a single inspirational teacher. They have a great like, story about how they, how they joined education because they, they had an inspirational teacher in high school. Uh, I'm a little bit different. I, I think a lot of my teachers when I was growing up were good, but it wasn't like a single one who really like captivated me. Um, so I kind of stumbled into this industry sort of by accident. Um, after high school, I was kind of deciding where to go for college, for university. And then um, I, I really wanted to study overseas, study outside of Singapore. So I was looking at different scholarships because my parents were like, you know, either you study in Singapore or if you want to go overseas, you got to find yourself like a scholarship. Um, so I looked at different, you know, scholarships. And like today, um, most of the scholarships in Singapore are actually sponsored by the government. So I was asking myself, can I imagine doing, um, you know, these jobs, government jobs for the next five to 10 years of my life, um, checking out the different jobs. And eventually I realized that um, for me, I didn't want a desk job. I didn't want to stay on my desk 24-7. Um, it's for some people and that's great. But for me, I wanted something that could impact people's lives, like directly and tangibly. Um, get on my feet for part of the day, really like get into the trenches and start working. Um, and so eventually it was a toss up between education and something like criminal or family law. Um, and eventually I chose education as because there weren't that many overseas scholarships for law. Um, so I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship to, to go to um, the US to study. Um, I did an undergrad in NYU and a master's in the Harvard Graduate School of Education. We call it HUCSI. and. And and it really was it helped see that my my eyes were open to the, to the broad range of opportunities and impact um, that you could do in education. And I think before that, a lot of my thought was like, oh, okay, well, education is really all about teaching. Um, but after being there and seeing so so many of my classmates where had come from different kind of backgrounds, from tech, from business, um, from even from like from like like being a management consultant, for instance, like um, and how all of that comes together. Um, to, to, to kind of like, I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna make a better life for the education sector. I wanna make a better life for students. How can my previous experience help me? And what do I wanna do moving forward, right? Apart from teaching, there, there are other opportunities. Um, and I realized, like, well, all these other opportunities create value for the sector. There's a value in doing it. Um, so that's when I really started seeing, like, oh, apart from teaching, how else can I get involved in, uh, in the education sector? So I finished up my my studies there. I came back, and I taught for two years in a secondary school in a in a high school, right? Um, and this was a pretty this was a high school with a disproportionately high amount of uh, low income students. So these students come from backgrounds um, that that really meant that a lot of their priority wasn't in wasn't in you know getting their homework done. It wasn't like getting food to put on the table for their families because their mom or dads might. Might not be at home, right? Uh, might be incarcerated or just working long hours. And I think like this was super eye-opening for me, as someone who came from a from a much more privileged background. So I think that everyone who kind of wants to be in a sector should spend a few years teaching, um, in an environment that's super different from the one they grew up. Just because it it opens your eyes up to 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 to, to challenge a lot of assumptions you had, and that's great for starting your career, right? Um, to, to challenge yourself and to, to, to question like, oh, I thought things were this way, but actually it's not. Um, so after two years teaching in that, in that high school, I went to the ministry um, and it was, a I focused on higher education policy. So we were doing policy analysis and staffing um, senior civil servants or education ministers. Um, and I was, I was fortunate enough to work under bosses and uh, directors who were, who were quite deliberate. In exposing me to quite a broad range of experiences. Um, and I can talk a bit more about this later on, but it um, runs the gamut from like quantitative analysis to secretariat work, um, designing like broad conversations for a wide range of education stakeholders, um, that kind of stuff. So that was what I did at the ministry, um, policy level, high level stuff. And thereafter, I, I move over to AdMaker, which is where I am right now.
0: Very good. Um... I want to ask you, what was it like working for the Ministry of Education in Singapore at the beginning of the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so so when I came in, it was definitely like a, I mean, weird, a weird time is kind of an understatement, right? Um, when I came in, um, like I mentioned before, I was in the higher education policy division. So we oversee the polytechnics and ITE, and some for some of our uh Overseas listeners, these are like community colleges or vocational institutes. Um, they they are they are tertiary or higher education institutions in Singapore, but they have um, they have a lot of independence, right? Um, and broadly speaking, our division has oversight of the polytechnics and um, the Institute of Technical Education. We call it ITE. So although these um, institutions have operational autonomy where the ministry comes in as a set kind of like broad direction to help coordinate efforts between the different institutions and also to ensure that their direction is is broadly aligned with the ministry's goals. So I think when I first came in, it was in the early 2020, right? And it wasn't that rough, right? <clears throat> early 2020, we we were still like wondering what COVID was, and <laughs> we had no idea about the kind of extent of impact it would have. So I entered in January 2020, right as the pandemic started. Um, and, and generally in the ministry, the time you're taking to onboard yourself into a policy role is around four months, and everyone knows that. So during those four months, you're given a bit of time to to really learn um, and get into the thick of things. So you're learning more than contributing, so so I wasn't trusted in the thick of things, but I remember like coming to the office at nine and people were already there. Like they were frantically like they had this look of like urgency in their face that I know what's going on, but like I'm involved in something that for now I can't tell anyone else because a lot of it was under wraps. So it was a funny. It was a it was a definitely like very unique situation I was in. Um, and I also remember like leaving at six or seven, and people were staying in. I was talking to them like, "Oh, aren't you going home?" They're like, "No, we're waiting for an email to come in, um, tallying up contact tracing. We're probably gonna stay till like nine or 10. Um, and 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 yeah, it was super surreal seeing that like as a as as someone who was new to the job, seeing that oh, this is this is probably what what things may become, right? But at that time, no one knew. Um, Fast forward to a few months in the pandemic, like April or May, um, we realized that it's not going to go away anytime soon, although none of us had at that time, like, any idea how long it would take. Um, But I think there was a collective understanding, right, as the pandemic drew on, that, you know, things must grow on, things things must go on, we can't afford the kind of learning loss um, that has happened in other countries, right? So... So the big question right for us was the how to balance a few kind of trade-offs, right, which is a bread and butter in policymaking. So the big question was how do you balance like um safety and security concerns, health concerns with the need that you know students must continue learning. Um your 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 students can I mean your education system can't like close down completely just because of the pandemic, right? It still has to go on. So the big question for us was how to make that happen. Um and I think, I think maybe I can give your listeners an example of how we tried to make that happen, right? Um, I was working on this admission scheme called early admissions uh, exercise. And basically, you can think of early admissions, uh, we call EAE, right, for early admissions exercise. We can think of EAE as like an admissions that's based on um, a student's aptitude in certain specific disciplines. So for example, for an IT course in one of the polys, instead of looking at a student's O-level results, their standardized test. Um, instead of that, you're looking at whether they have computational thinking skills, you're looking at how passionate they are based on kind of courses they've taken, um, whether they've taken part in hackathons, looking at their experiences in those hackathons, looking at their portfolios. So, really, a more holistic understanding of like why you're interested in this course and what do you want to get out of it rather than just looking at their uh, exam results. Which I think is a big part of the criticism. A lot of uh, mm-hmm. a lot of education systems in Asia, mm-hmm. right? You're looking too much at exam results. We are trying to break past that. Um, but of course, looking at your aptitude, looking at your portfolio, is a more nuanced kind of kind of look. And before the pandemic, we used to get students down to interview. We got students down to do like hands-on uh, workshops to take part in like boot camps to see how well they could. Um, participate in certain activities that were related to the course they were applying to. And of course during the pandemic, like that was that was hard to do, right? So we needed to transition online methods of selection. Um, and these online methods of course caused some some worry right amongst parents. Uh, whether online selection is fair, is it rigorous? Do they and, and do they like exacerbate issues of equity, right? So, for example, the students who don't have computers at home, who have poor Internet connections, would, would they be unfairly penalized, uh, which I think are all fair like, you know, concerns. So, of course, we had to go back and look at the courses and then work with all the institutions to say like this course, like, for example, dentistry requires a lot of hands on because you need to see how students are like um, how their hand-eye coordination is. So you still have to face to face aptitude test because it's, it's pretty hard to assess hand-eye coordination online. Um, so we had to trash it out, right? And and on top of that, you had to create like draw plans, what we call draw plans for different scenarios, because we have no idea how the situation would evolve. Things could get better, things could, could get worse. Um, so so we have to create different scenarios for different, we have to diff- create different draw plans for different scenarios, right? Um, if the pandemic gets worse, you pull out a draw plan and say, okay, we have to pivot all of EAE admissions uh, interviews to online, what would that look like, right? And if it gets slightly better, which are the courses which you would want to prioritize to have online interviews, right? And which of them would you absolutely need to have face-to-face? So the whole exercise um, was a a great example of what we call first principles thinking. Kind of like prioritizing different considerations. What's your non-negotiables and what you have a bit more wiggle room. And also, how after you've you've done that whole thing out, how you communicate it to your stakeholders, how do you communicate it to your parents, uh, to your lecturers, to your institutions who might have a great who might have um, um, uh, huge concerns, right? Uh, and you want to be able to address their concerns. Um, yeah. So 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 that was kind of example of how we tried to balance our trade off between. Uh, health and security concerns, and trying to prevent learning loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 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 I think as as we as we move on in 2021, a lot of the priori- uh, policy reviews, which were initially deprioritized because of the uh, pandemic, we realized that um, we have to continue with policy work, right? Uh, and I think even though um, these policies, we realize you know policy work takes a, a long time to implement. The regular policy cycle is as long as five years in terms of. Uh, reviewing, implementing, and, and you know that whole cycle takes around five years. Um, but we realized we have to continue with it, right? Um, so one of the reviews that we that I was involved in was called um, the review of pathways and opportunities in applied education. It was a it was it was a huge review, right? It was led by a minister. Um, in essence, it's it's the equivalent of a of a blue ribbon committee. You you have all these um, senior level stakeholders. Uh, CEOs and and senior management of different uh, public sector, private sector, people sector, companies coming in um, to try to deliberate about how you want to make, how you want to grow the sector, how you want to ensure that our higher education sector, inner police and ITE are relevant to the needs of students uh, and kind of like still meet their aspirations, right? So what's fit for purpose 10 years ago may not be fit for purpose now. Uh, We want to relook at that. So I was a, I was involved in a lot of uh, secretariat work, um, and what what that means was you 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 ensure that um, everyone in the committee is kind of heard. You organize meetings for the committee. Um, it requires a lot of diplomacy and finesse, uh, a lot of people skills, a lot of stakeholder management skills to make sure that everyone's uh, you know pleased and appeased, and everyone kind of like gets their say. Um, And I was also involved in a few big policy pieces related to that committee, related to that review, uh, such as number one, how do you expand opportunities for deeper industry exposure, Um, including, say, industry immersion for different profiles of students? Say you're uh, extremely passionate in this industry, how can we actually help you to get um, involved in a deeper way, right? Uh, for example, do you shadow uh, senior management? Can you serve as a PA to one of the senior management for a few months? Uh, exploring all of these um, opportunities for industry exposure, which previously were, were pretty ad hoc, right? Um, and left up to the individual polytechnics. So we want to coordinate kind of like uh, the deeper industry exposure. So that's the first thing. Uh, and the second thing that we were looking at that I think was super interesting was how do you provide greater flexibility for polytechnic students? Um, I think there's a lot of conversation going around, in the West at least, around a four-year college and the value of a four-year college. And I think a lot of that criticism is around, well, do you need four years to learn your curriculum, right? Um, which is related to the idea of personalized learning. How do you ensure that students um, go through courses in a way that is most attentive to their needs, right? If you, if a student um, needs more time to graduate because they need a longer time to go through different modules, just because they might need a bit more time to understand the content, um, can we give them a bit, a bit more flexibility to go through that? Um, so can we offer these personalized learning pathways um, for students to help? help meet their needs and what are the resources that we would need is it worth it to invest in those resources just to cater for like five percent or six percent of students so all these are hard questions that we really have to like deliberate around and kind of like calculate the policy trade-offs so that was what we were doing in, in in 2021 um and 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 i think that was that was also super interesting so i think if you think about it um yeah there was there was a lot uh, mm. which which we had to, to grapple with <laughs> during yeah. during
0: my two years there <laughs> what an experience um on reflection what was the biggest challenge and perhaps the learning points from your time there
1: so so my biggest challenge um, especially when I first came in was kind of squaring the on ground experience which I had in schools before against the, the policy exposure which is at a high level right? When you're a teacher, you, 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 your focus is on your classroom. Your focus is in, on your students, right? And I'm sure all the teachers out there that they're listening to your podcast have at least one or two experiences of like, you know, you, you, you make sacrifices for your kids, right? Um, you make sacrifices for your kids, even though it might affect sometimes your own mental well-being or your own kind of health. Um, and, and, and seeing the kind of decisions that you have to make at a high level seeing the kind of decisions that you have to make when you're in the policy policy departments. Um, there were a couple of times where I was making recommendations where my instinct was like, well, if I was a teacher on the ground, I would hate it, right? Because there are some um, decisions that I have to make for the good of the health and security, which would place a greater burden on teachers, right, for contact tracing. Um, for, to ensure that the students are taking the temperatures every day, things like that, as, as mm. pedestrian as that may sound, that was important. But but it would mean that there's a greater, great, greater kind of like uh burden on the teachers. Um so so I mean that was something that I was grappling with. And I, I, I feel like after a while you reconcile it, right? You you you, you reconcile it by having a kind of like a watertight policy rationale when you're proposing a policy when you're when you're making decisions that impact not just your classroom or your school but it impacts like a hundred thousand students like fifty thousand i don't know staff amongst all of the polytechnics and ITE. you want to have a very good reason why you're making certain decisions um against others right based on a set of criteria which everyone aligns on so you're 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 your decision making process has to be very thorough and it has to be very comprehensive, right? And then once you once you're once you're secure with that, then after that communication is important. How you communicate your 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 decisions down to your stakeholders is important. But that's a second order issue, right? You you can't make decisions just because your stakeholders want to hear a certain of things, right? Um, you can't make decisions based on short-term gains. Um, and I think you have it, it requires a certain set of, I guess, courage to be able to say that. I think that this should be made for the better of the, the the whole education fraternity, even if it means that, you know, certain segments are gonna shoulder a bit more burden, and you have to do so in a way that, like, I guess people 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 are okay with it, right? So that just reinforces the importance of, I guess, uh, policy decision making, right? Um, so that was something that I was grappling with. That was something that in the first few months I was I was a little like mm, unsure about. Um, but the biggest learning points, right? So I think the biggest learning points were three. I the first one is about trade-offs. Like I mentioned just now, to be very clear what you're trading off against. Like all policy is trade-offs. So you can't really just decide that I want to do this and have you can't have your your, your cake and eat it too sometimes. You have to be what you have to be clear what you're trading off against. And you have to be clear what you can't trade off against, what's non-negotiable. Um, you have to be very clear about how to prioritize your decision-making criteria, right? Um, and I think that's something that's applicable in any job. So that's something that I found tremendously transferable. Um, the second thing is how do you manage, manage people, right? How do you manage up to, to your bosses, um, to, to political office holders? How do you manage laterally to other people within the ministry? who might have competing um, aims, who might have competing goals, objectives, mm-hmm. um, to kind of try to find common ground with them? Um, how do you manage down um, to people who might be reporting to you? Uh, informally or formally, right? And and informally is a, is a, is a whole, whole different ballgame because sometimes these people may not, may not be formally reporting to you but you need to work with them they're more junior to you and you've been given a responsibility of trying to mentor them and and, and kind of work with them to make sure they work it up to speed how do you do that so all of these like uh, different experiences managing different profiles of people um, was something that I took away in for in, in a big way and that's something that's, that's that's tremendously transferable as well and I think the third thing that that I, I got out of is the importance of having internal processes. Uh, especially when you're managing a team, especially when you're trying to do operations, how it was so clear to me that the institutions and the organizations and departments who have very clear internal processes do so much well when a crisis hits, right? Rather than those who don't have clear internal processes. Yeah. And even though COVID kind of showed us that you have to continually evolve these processes, um, the, the it was it was quite clear to me that those departments who had stronger processes going in were able to modify them uh, on the fly, rather than those who just, you know, were super ad hoc about the way they did things. So I guess those three things were, were my my biggest, like, learning points.
0: Yeah. Um, I was in an international school in Singapore at the time when that kicked off, and I think that, uh, the, that communication piece and an explanation of why decisions were being made was very good, and... Um, also I had the benefit of uh, getting to become very good with uh, Google Forms and spreadsheets as we were tracking people's uh, travels at the start of the uh, start of the pandemic uh, which you yeah, know was a not a positive way to look at things but um, no, that's really really interesting um, can you tell us a bit now about your current role at Edmaker
1: Yeah so current role at my uh, current my current role at Edmaker my my formal title is uh, Product manager, but in a in a small company at maker, it's really it's really anything that needs doing. Um, my my experience runs the gamut from like business development work, where we're looking for US partners um, to 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 join us as we kind of like expand into the US. Um, we're doing a lot of product management. I'm doing a lot of product management because we have a project um, building STEM labs and STEAM labs in Ghana, so that's another piece that I have to manage. Um, and I'm also working on a, our flagship new product called Eddie. Uh, so Eddy is short firm for the Educators Buddy, and it's a it's a it's a platform where teachers can help, uh, which which aims to help teachers infuse emerging technology into their classroom every day. Um, so those are the, the the some of the big things I was I'm I'm currently in charge of, and I'm working on an AdMaker. maker.
0: Yeah. And uh, recently, you invited me to your office, which is a community lab at uh, UWC Tampines in Singapore. Uh, can you? tell us about that space and how the partnership works. Yeah, um, it's,
1: it's super interesting that we we call it a community lab and that's the way I've, I've presented to you. But but for the for listeners out there, um, it's essentially the, you can think of it as a, a, a maker space that's open to members of the community. And I think in many countries uh, uh, across the world, um, not just in Singapore, it's, it's tremendously hard to sustain a maker space um, just because the unit economics sometimes just don't make sense. Um, it's, it's super hard to, 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 to make revenue to cover your overheads. Uh, but I think the community lab that we have in, we have in United World College is, is one model that I think um, is quite sustainable in how we run a makerspace. Um, just to give you a bit of background, the lab started off in 2016 um, as United World College wanted to develop a makerspace. Um, but have it a little bit different from their current design and technology labs. So, so they have a couple of design technology labs, but they wanted the makerspace space to be different. They wanted it to be a place where students uh, and members of the community can come in to tinker on projects. They wanted it to be very uh, ground up and organic. They didn't want their they didn't want it to be run by um, run run top down by the school, right? Um, and they also wanted to. And this was done very explicitly. They wanted to bring in the community, the surrounding community. I think one recognition is that, and, and, and Dave, you would, you would also be familiar with this point, that sometimes international schools, um, by, by very nature of the reason for their existence, they, are, they can be a little insulated and, and separated from the communities that they're embedded in. Um, and I think UWC had a very, um, they were very deliberate that they didn't want this to happen for their makerspace. So they wanted to make it a more inclusive environment. Um, so when AdMaker spoke to them, well, what we said was that, well, one of the programs that we have is called Repair Kopitiam, and and Kopitiam, um, is, is, uh, is, uh, is, I mean, vernacular in Singapore for a a coffee shop, right, where people come to hang out, people come to, like, eat, to talk to their friends, to to drink a cup of coffee, and chat about anything under the sun, and that was a kind of, like, um, program that we were running where people could bring in, um, their spoiled or non-functioning consumer uh, electrical goods, come down, tinker tinker with it with your friends, learn from some of our experienced repair coaches on an informal basis, right? They pick up a new skill um, and they can use that skill whenever a consumer appliance in your house breaks down. Um, so, so that's a skill that we thought that UWC stakeholders, such as the students and your teachers and their parents um, would be interested in, right? Um, and, and and we thought that's a skill that might be useful for them. Um, and you, have, you said wow that's a, that's a wonderful program let's bring it on board um, and, and we came on board to, to run repair CoPDDM workshops with parents with their teachers um, even with their students so they, they had a lot of fun. Um, and from, from there on we kind of deepened our engagement with the community So currently we run programs such as open lab Fridays where we open a open a, open a community lab to their stakeholders, and we run programs, right? Um, one of the programs that we ran pre- previously was about exposing uh, you know, community lab visitors to augmented reality and virtual reality. So we have a bunch of Google Cardboard, and and a lot of what AdMaker does is also an emerging technology, so we're in a pretty good position to try to translate one, some of that into our open lab programs. So students come down; they got to play around with like AR and VR and other emerging technologies. It's it's a whole lot of fun, um, and then we also like share with teachers how they can actually help to integrate it in their classrooms. We give them um, professional development support if in the in the case that they want to infuse emerging tech into their into their curriculum, and that's all done on a very uh, informal level because we've built up a level of trust where 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 they where, where they're trusting us to actually come in to be that be that. Um, informal support for their teachers and for their staff. Um, so I think we see it as a win-win-win. So so we get a makerspace, right? And to some extent we are shielded from the, the, the crazy expensive rents that's hitting everywhere in Singapore right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we give back to the UWC community um, through organizing all of these programs for their students, teachers, and parents. And UWC gets to fulfill their mission, right? Of being a bit more inclusive, being a bit more open to their, their community. Um, yeah, and it's super symbiotic, that's a, that's a kind of symbiotic relationship that we wanted to promote when we started this, uh, when we started
0: the lab. Yeah, it's an impressive facility, and I think that sort of model is something that a lot of international schools really should uh, be looking into. Um, what is uh, something you're working on now that uh, you're excited about?
1: Uh, so something I'm working on now, and, and this, is, this is super new, this is hot of the press. Uh, we're literally launching our beta today. Um, it's eddie i I think i mentioned it previously before the name of our product is eddie short form for the educators buddy and what it is is a new professional development approach and product um, aimed at empowering teachers to teach with emerging technology right so i think a lot of times teachers think of emerging tech as something like an after-school program i'm going to introduce it to my students after school but what we're saying is that well your students are going to grow up um, with this emerging technology around them, right? When they grow up to enter the workforce, it's not going to be emerging technology anymore. It's just going to be technology or like their lives, right? Why not get themselves familiar with it, um, familiarize the students with it to, pre- to prepare themselves better for the future? Um, and I think a lot of teachers, understandably, their response is, you know, uh, we have a lot of things to do. Administrative work, um Classroom teaching, lesson prep, and and you know what I I, I get that right. You know I, I was I was I, I I was once in their shoes. Um, and so what we're doing is we're compiling a whole whole set of resources. We're developing a whole set of resources in house to provide education resources for teachers to let them know how to integrate uh, emerging technology into their own academic classes, right? So these are like lesson plans. Um, technology tutorials, instructional strategies, uh, to really get them to say, oh, well, I I could try this out. I could try this lesson plan. I don't need to be super familiar with the technology. I just need to be game enough to take it and try to implement it in my classroom. Um, And and, and that's what we kind of want to change, right? Uh, So our beta is kind of like the first step in doing that. It's not perfect. There are are a lot of kinks to iron out, um, but it's a start. And the other thing is, we we'd love to work with teachers and educators who are interested in this. Uh, I think I think you know, as a as an edtech comp- company, our as an edtech company catering to teachers, right? We live and die uh, on the support of our our users, right? So we want to hear from teachers and we want to hear from educators about what they find useful about it, what they don't find useful, mm-hmm. uh, what they might like to see on it, right? So so we would love to. hear gear from you know teachers who 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 have the same kind of passion. Um yeah. So if, if any of your listeners are, are are interested, yeah, feel free to reach
0: out. Brilliant. I can imagine a lot of people being very interested in that. And the little bit that I saw uh, the other week, yeah, I, I think you're onto something. It's looking really good. Um now you also recently presented on the topic uh demystifying AI for primary school students. Um, can you share some thoughts on, on that topic, just, just quickly?
1: Yeah, uh, I was actually invited to share with a bunch of uh, local teachers about that as part of our outreach efforts for, for Eddie. Um, so, so there's this, I guess, a ground-up nonprofit uh, grassroots kind of initiative um, called STRING a so shout out to String. Um, if you're interested in how technology can be used in education, they are a great resource. They're a great group of teachers in public schools in Singapore who are who are constantly kind of pushing the boundaries. So I I strongly encourage you to check out their 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 socials and their their um their blog. But they, what they did was they they invited me to talk to some of the teachers on this topic. Um and and this is a topic that's actually kind of quite close to my heart. Um as an as an educator. So what AdMaker does is we carry out uh, ad Tech training, right? Uh, like I mentioned, in emerging technology for teachers, and one of the things that we did was we 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 thought, you know, how can we bring in some of this emerging technology down to the primary school level, right? Um, I think the further you go from university, the further you go down uh, along the 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 so-called education chain, right, down to primary school and preschool it's sometimes harder for us to envision how emerging technology can be applied to the to, to students who are so young, right? 10 or 11. But I wanted to show an example of, you know, um, how we managed to do it and to show teachers that, you know, if, if, if we can do it, I'm giving everyone the resources so that you can do it too in your classroom. Um, what we did was we used a couple of um, freeware programs. Uh, one of them is machine learning for kids, um, which is a... Uh, web app that allows you to train your own machine learning model online, um, and we did a computer vision. We we help we train we help we help students develop their own computer vision machine learning models. Um, and we operationalize it in Scratch, right? Um, and as, as, as most of you, as some of you might know, Scratch is a, a coding program, a block coding program developed by MIT. Um, it's, again, it's free to use. And one of the um, affordances of Scratch is uh, it allows you to run machine learning um, commands. So you can develop an app in Scratch that, for example, uh, helps you detect when you have a bad posture. That's one of the projects that the kids came up with, right? Problem statement is that well, a lot of the teachers and a lot of their friends have terrible posture, so they want to create a machine learning me right now. Over. Sorry. I'll yeah, start. I know. I'm like hunching all the time. <laughs> so, so it would be like it would flash a flash a set of words saying, "Well, you gotta sit up straight if the if the, if the <laughs> webcam detects that you're hunching over and like it would say, "Well done" if you're sitting up straight. So I know I thought that was just amazing, right? They're using AI to help to solve problems that they see in their environment. Uh, so i I thought that's something that's super worth sharing um so i can give the resources and the link to the webinar for your for your listeners as well they can check it out
0: brilliant um and uh yeah if people want to get in touch with you uh how can they uh, go about doing that uh
1: so they can get in touch with me um, drop me an email at terence at at maker.com um that's t-e-r-e-n-c-e at at maker. that's E-D-M-8-K-E-R. Yeah, it's eight, like the number. Um, so they can also, they can drop me an email or they can just message me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm free to chat, open to chat with, with anyone who kind of has the same vision um, because because we know that kind of like this journey in ad tech is not, is, is, it's hard to do it alone. And it's, it's so much easier once you've had a community of people um,
0: along the ride and on the journey. Absolutely. Look, uh, Terence, it's been uh, fantastic to have you here on Education Talks. Uh, Really looking forward to keeping in touch and seeing how things go with Eddie and all sorts of things. Uh, Really appreciate your time. Thank you very much and uh, perhaps see you in the future. Thanks so much, Dave. Education Talks is an EdEvents production for the EdEvents community. You can keep up to date with the development of the community by registering on the website at ed.events.